Hi, so we are uh, once again glad you're with us this morning. Um, so if you're new to our facility, here's what happens. We're really excited to have this facility, but we're also recognizing that it's short term. We're going to outgrow it pretty quick. Uh, but one of our struggles is the air conditioner. When it kicks on, it's really loud. So we try to kick it off. If somebody just gets extremely too hot and you're like, dude, you got to turn that AC back on, we'll turn it back on. Uh, but we like to have an interactive discussion on Sunday mornings. Oh, I just erased that. That was today's passage. Uh, my bad. Uh, so for that reason, we try to keep the AC off every chance we get. So let me rewrite that again. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Joshua 24, 15, and then we're going to turn most of our attention to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got a handful of them right here, uh, and if you want one, we can get one to you. Otherwise, handy little thing called the Version Bible app comes in pretty handy for me most of the time. Um, but we started a discussion last week that we we're calling On the Fence. Um, on the Fence. So if you're on the fence, you, you're not really taking a stand. You're not really going anywhere. And the premise that we talked about last week is life on the fence is, is a shallow life. Because if you're going to go deep into anything, you have to get off the fence and go deep into a journey to experience anything of any depth and significance. There is no significance on the fence. And we gave a couple of illustrations. I told you about a deer that I found on my property walking the fence line. And deer typically are very agile, and they can jump over the fence like, like it's nothing. Uh, but I found this deer um, had became part of our scenery, if you can imagine that. He had been there for a significant amount of time. He didn't make it over the fence, and he perished on the fence. And the concept is that, uh, that we, if we don't uh, get off the fence in different areas of our life, we too are going to perish on the fence never experiencing any significance or depth in our journey. So we've got to make a choice. And Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, he has the nation of Israel. God promised this nation, uh, this land. It was the promised land. And he's taken them through this huge journey. And, and they stand on the edge of this land, and they've captured it, and it's theirs. All they got to do is go home, settle in, and raise a family. That's all that's left. And Joshua gives one last speech. And he says, you got to choose today whom you're going to serve when you get there. Are you going to serve the gods of your fathers? Are you going to serve the gods of the land? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what he said. He said, you can serve the, the gods of your fathers, but you know that that's not the true God. You can serve the gods of the land if you want to. But there's no truth in that either. He said, as for me and my house, right now, today, I'm telling you that we choose to serve the Lord. Okay, and that's the conversation he had with the people on the edge of this. So we're going to look at that statement today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, once again, we're very interactive in here. I like to talk, not just to myself, but I like to hear you talk. Somebody just say, that's a house? You got it. You got it. You can't read my writing, but you can discern my drawings. So, as for me and my house. Now, he's not talking about his brick and mortar. He's talking about something. What's he talking about? He's not. 
His family. As for me and my family, I'm telling you right now, we're going to serve the Lord. So what, what or who is it that makes up the family? What are the pieces of the family that Joshua is talking about here? What or who makes up a family? Parents. Parents? And husband, wife, children. Dude, you just spit out three answers in one breath. That's the most you've ever done. That praise, praise Jesus for Tony. This I got more. Uh, so, in out of parents, we can we can assume uh, biologically. If we're going to have children in the, in the natural sense, uh, without utilizing science, we know that's going to take a mom and a dad in this context. And Joshua didn't have science on his favor at this point, right? So he's talking about a mom and a dad, husband and a wife, and the kids that are represented there. And he said, "That's my home. That's my home." And the interesting thing that we're going to nail on today, we're going to kind of hit on, is that Joshua, as the dad. And the husband told you in advance, as for me and everybody under my roof, we're going to serve the Lord. He, he made that declaration. He made that declaration. Um, Joshua made a decision for the spiritual condition of his entire family. Okay? Joshua did. He made the spiritual decision for the spiritual condition of his entire family. Um, let, me, let me give you some, there was a, a survey that had, well not a survey, but a, a, uh, some statistics that came out of something. This is completely old, this is almost 20 years old, but I think it holds true. So let me give you some stats that we're gonna work off of for just a second. Uh, if you have a dad and, no, I did that, dad plus mom, and both of them are they use the term um, active in church. Now, active in church is not our goal. Active in Christ is our goal. We don't want you just to be committed to the church. We want you to be faithful to Jesus. Okay? So when we talk about dad and mom are both faithful participants in the church, keep in mind, that's not my goal. But that's, a, that's something we can observe in order to see the impact that's being had. So dad plus mom, both faithful, active in the church, 33% of the kids become the same, okay? 33% of the kids become 41, except 41% become irregular. So about 75% of the kids are still engaged in the church if mom and dad are both connected to the church. Uh, but when dad becomes irregular, so dad is irregular and mom is regular in the church, uh, then the statistics changed a little bit, um, just a little bit. 3% of the kids become regularly connected to the church. Okay, once again, church is not the goal, but church is the body that Jesus has instituted in order to take the gospel to the world. And at some point, if you're disconnected from the church, you become disconnected from Christ and his work. Okay. So when dad becomes irregular, you drop down to 3% of children who are connected to the church. When dad becomes 
when dad is non-engaged, he's just out of the picture, doesn't care what mom's doing, what he's doing with the kids, 2% of the kids are connected regularly. Here's the, here's the twist though. When dad is regular, let's say dad is regular, plus a mom disengaged, not going at all, not a part of anything at all, 44% um, of your kids are connected to the church. Okay. Dad and mom both regular. It's interesting that when you look at these, if these statistics hold up, that a dad who is faithful to Christ, it says, as for me and my house, no matter what my wife does, I'm sold out. I'm getting off the fence. I'm engaged in the journey. When dad says yes, it's actually more influential as the children observe their father than when dad and mom are both going together. Right? There's just something unique about the decision of a father and of a dad and of a husband when he says, I'm getting off the fence and I'm going in. Also, keep in mind, 73.6 of all statistics are made up half the time. Okay. Keep that in mind as well. I don't, I, I don't want you to hold on to these statistics as if, if I do this, this is my percentage. I want you to know that this is the trend that we can observe in our world that when dads get off the fence and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, the impact is felt through the entire home. It's felt through the entire home. Um, all we need to know is that God has designed the home to respond to and follow the spiritual direction of the husband and father. That is God's design for the home that he is established the husband-father to be the primary influencer of the spiritual direction of his home. Okay? Um, husbands and fathers who get off the fence and go deep into their journey with Christ often have families who do the same. Okay? That's often the case. That's usually the trend. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. So it's in the New Testament. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, and we know it as the book of Ephesians. So he's writing them this letter, and he's trying to explain how the family operates and how the spiritual headship of the father operates. So a lot of what Joshua made a declaration way back then when we turn to the New Testament from the Old Testament, now Paul's explaining what Joshua was doing. Okay, So Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read, we're going to start with verse 22 and 23, and then we're going to take a few steps through this passage. So read with me Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, Jesus is the Savior of the body, but it, it's an illustration. When you look at the family model, the husband is the primary influencer, just as Christ is the head of the church. Um, He is providing uh, a point that was made by our statistics. 
It's interesting. The husband being the head means that his thoughts become her thoughts most of the time. Right? You seen that? Right? The way Shay thinks is the way Hope thinks. The way I think becomes the way Shelley thinks. The way Mark thinks becomes the way... Not all the time. Not all the time. But <laughs> there's a trend that happens. Uh, his views become her views. Where he goes, she often finds herself. Why? Because that's the way the home is designed. And whether you intentionally engage in that, you can look at your home and you can see that point being proven true. Um, years ago, I ministered to a couple who was in like significant trouble. It was a husband, a wife, and they had a son that was really little at that time. He had been deployed into multiple uh, overseas in, in war. He had had many deployments, seen way more stuff than I could ever imagine. Um, and he suffered from PTSD. On top of that, he was following the destructive patterns of his father. Multi-generational destruction that he continued to walk in, just following in the pattern of his dad. Remember, you can follow, the influence of a dad goes both ways. And, and this man, suffering from PTSD from those deployments, also suffering from the destructive patterns that he continued to repeat, multi-generational. Um, my friend would disappear for weeks at a time. He would leave his wife and his kid and just disappear. Like, I'd be like, where's he at? And she's like, I don't know, hadn't heard from him in two weeks. Just disappeared. Um, and one time, uh, the wife called me and said, hey, his girlfriend just called me asking for this. Like, he'd been gone for a month, and now the girlfriend that she didn't even know existed calls her phone. <laughs> it's like, hey, your husband's in trouble. Need your help. Like, are you kidding me? The, the nature of this relationship was incredible. Uh, and then, a lot of times, we wouldn't know where he was until the cops called and found out he'd been in jail and was facing prison time. Multiple times this went on and on over the course of a couple of years. In counseling, the problem that I have, because I counseled them for often, I remember sitting on his couch talking to him, I remember sitting in the office talking to both of them, and, and I couldn't tell where the PTSD ended and his destructive choices began. You just, it was so muddy in trying to discern the choices and the actions that he was making. I'm like, is he suffering? Or is he causing suffering? And you just couldn't tell where one began and the other ended. So let me ask you this. Remember this, I ask questions, we get answers. Uh, what is a wife supposed to do in this situation? I mean, you're the counselor. Put yourself in my seat, you're sitting there talking to this couple or you're talking to her as she hadn't known where her husband is for a month and you just get a call from the girlfriend. What's a wife to do in this situation? You're supposed to have grace. <laughs> you put a giant supposed to on the front of that. Well, not a work in practice, but... <laughs> okay. Supposed to have grace. What would it look like to have grace? If you're supposed to, Right. And you, you, you would try to be forgiving and understanding of the situation. Be deeper into what caused that destructive behavior. Okay. I'm going to put a giant <laughs> supposed 
Because although I think you guys think that's what she's supposed to do, I'm not sure you're convinced that you would even tell her to do that. Because what, what if you tell her to do that and it only compounds on top of her and now they're going to look back at you and say, you told me to do this. You made it worse because you gave me this counsel and I followed your counsel and it only got worse. So do you believe the supposed to enough to encourage and walk with them through that? What's a wife supposed to do here? I think she, you, you have to do like what they did and seek somebody to help. Okay. But I think you also reach a point where you have to walk away before you self-destruct yourself. Yes. Uh, at some point, you think there's a walk-away point. Right? And that's out of self Preservation, right? Uh, so, whatever she was supposed to do, she waited. Brand new believer in Christ. I mean, I saw her baptized. I saw her, both of them come to faith in Jesus. Brand new believer in Christ, less than two years old in Jesus. And this was the situation going on with her husband. And you know what she did? She waited. She waited. You know what she did when he ended up at the VA hospital in psychiatric health? She went and visited him. You know what she did when he went to prison? She wrote letters. She went to visit him. She drove to another state to go see her husband. And I didn't even have the courage to counsel that. I just observed it. Right? So I'm not telling you that she did what I said because I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. But I observed her waiting on her husband for years. For years. Now it eventually ended not by her choice. Self-preservation was not in her vocabulary. Now if it became abusive, get out of the house. Don't sit there and get beat. Right? Take you and your kids somewhere safe. But that wasn't even the problem. He just kept leaving. He wasn't beating her. He was leaving her. And she waited. It was astounding for me to observe as a pastor. That's what, when Paul talks here, wives, submit to your husbands. In her situation, submitting to her husband was believing that Christ suffered so she didn't have to make him suffer again. Right? That Jesus had suffered for her husband and the last thing that she needed to do was put more suffering on him for the mistakes that he was making. Instead, she submitted to her husband and submitting looked like waiting. And it was the most astounding faith that I've ever seen in operation. Never seen anything like it before or after. The natural tendency when your husband is not where you want him to be. What is the natural tendency when your husband's not where you want him to be? him. Become the biggest critic of your husband. You're not where you need to be. You're screw up. Why do you never get that right? Why are you still doing that? Why are you... Don't you see that this is messed up? You just become the biggest critic. Why? Because you think if, if, if somebody's going to help your husband see his flaws, it's got to be you. And so when your husband's not where he needs to be, then the natural tendency is to become his biggest critic of his flaws. 
But the helpful activity is to remain behind him. So your support critiques equal discouragement. Support equals courage. So when you become a critic of your husband because he's not where he needs to be, and you continue to point out his flaws and his mistakes, what do you do? You take his courage and you discourage him. You eliminate his courage. You chop his legs out from underneath him. You make him fearful to do anything because he feels that he's a screw-up and his identity becomes your critics, your critiques. He sees himself as a mirror from you, his wife, and when his wife is reflecting back all his flaws, he's lost any courage to get off the fence and go deep into anything. Now he's fearful to get off the fence because the best mirror I have in my life is my wife. And when my wife is telling me how bad I suck, then the last thing I want to do is do something bold and courageous and go deep into a journey that might wreck me. But it also might be my salvation. That's the natural tendency, but the better activity is to support your husband even though he's flawed. And what you're going to do is you're going to build courage. And when you build courage in your husband, now he's got courage and boldness to get off the fence and become the man that you you long for him to be and actually he longs to be too. But when you become his biggest critic, you steal his courage and he'll never get off the fence. Right? So it's it's counteractive. I know it's natural, but natural is not always good. Right? So, um, that's our wife section. Part of our home. Number one. Wives. You want your husband to be the man that you want him to be? You want him to get off the fence and be bold? You want him to declare for your home, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do great things. We're going to be bold. We're going to be courageous. You are his best mirror. And if you're his biggest critic, you're going to eliminate the courage to do anything great in your home. Support him. Build his courage. He doesn't deserve it. He's a loser. I don't care. Build his courage. Point out where he's great. Don't point out where he's wrong. Does that mean you avoid his flaws? No. But it means you strengthen his strengths so that they become bigger than his flaws. Give him courage to be bold. And he'll lead your home better. Ephesians 5, let's look at verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, cleansing her by the washing of the water of the word. Um, As Jesus cleanses you, you cleanse her. Role of a husband. Jesus cleanses you, you cleanse her. Many men are willing to do the first half of that text. Give yourself up for her, as Christ did for the church. I'll die for you, honey. 
I'll go to war for you. I'll be a man for you. I will do courageous things one time and I'll die. And that'll be my legacy. I mean, like, we're willing to do something great one time. I'll be the hero, right? I'll be the hero of the scenario. If somebody comes in our house, I will stab them to my death to protect you and the kids. I will be that guy, right? Everybody wants to be the hero. Yet few men are willing to die to themselves daily to bathe their wife in the water of the God's word to make her clean. You get up in the morning and you die to yourself and you speak and you live the word of God over your wife so that it cleanses her as Christ cleansed you. So that you may present her to her heavenly father better than you received her from her earthly father. Right? The goal of my marriage, one goal of my marriage, is to present my wife, to present Shelley to our Heavenly Father the day that day comes, better, cleaner, more holy than the day I received her from her earthly father. And I have a certain amount of days in between there where I wake up and I die to myself. And I become the hero by living and proclaiming this word over her life so that she might be so that she might be cleansed in her life. Everybody wants to be the hero once. Be strong and courageous. Yeah, I'll do that. Kill me, I'll take it from my wife. Yeah, but get up every day. Die to yourself so that she might become better. That's the role of a husband. Few men are willing to live that out. So I want to ask you another question. What is, what is keeping the average man... And when I say the average man, I really want you to look inside yourself and give an answer, but I'm actually going to ask you in a vague way so that you can answer for the average man without calling yourself out. That makes sense? So what is keeping the average man from fulfilling this role? To wake up, die to yourself daily, and cleanse my wife by washing her in the Word of God every day so that she might become holy. What keeps the average man from fulfilling that role? Self-centeredness. Okay. What else? It's kind of the same thing. It's like fear of the cost, what it would cost you. Yeah, I'll die once. Dang, dying every day. That's how. That's almost more costly than my blood. It's probably one of the big ones. What else? What keeps the average man from fulfilling this role in his home? Not confident in scripture. I don't even know how to handle the word of God to benefit my wife. Where would a guy start, right? It's a valid point. Right? But this is the role. So at some point, our call as a man, as a husband, is to get off the fence defeat my excuses and fulfill my role. And I can sit on the fence and say, yeah, I see that purpose off in the distance. Dang, my butt feels good on a, on a fence. You know what a butt on a fence will do? It'll split you right up the middle, right? You'll perish on the fence. At some point, 
we got to get off the fence and we got to accept our role in our home and say, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. And that's going to cost me my excuses. And I'm going to have to get engaged in the battle if I'm going to fulfill my role. Okay? Let's jump to Ephesians 6. And we're going to pick on your kids for a minute. Children. I love how Paul starts each section out. Wives. In case you don't know who I'm talking about. Husbands. Now, now your kids. Children. Just so there's a little clarity. Obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, Fathers, do not stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So children are to obey and honor fathers Moms, children are to obey and honor their parents. And dads promote honor and avoid frustration when we lead with clarity and direction. Okay? You want your kids to obey and honor you. If you have kids, that's a yes. Right? Because it just... Disobedient children just make you want to slap them around. Right? Don't, but it makes you want to. You, you, you desire that. But if you really desire it, then you'll implement the second half. Don't, don't frustrate your kids. Don't exhaust them, is what Colossians says. Dads, don't exhaust your children. How do you exhaust them? A lack of clarity and a lack of direction. If your kids wake up and they don't know what the you want because you change every day, you're going to exhaust your children, and your children aren't going to know what obedience and honor looks like towards you. So if you long for the first half, children, obey your parents, as in the Lord, honor your, your father and mother. If you desire that, then dads would get off the fence and we're going to go single direction. And we're going to tell our kids what direction we're going and we're going to tell them what it looks like before we get there. We're going to explain it while we are here and we're going to reflect on it after we get there. And we're going to be single-mindedness in our direction, in our instruction, so that our kids wake up every day and they know what honor looks like in their home. Your kids are going to be so irritated at us if they wake up every day and say, I don't know what dad cares about today. Don't know what it'd look like to honor him today. Is he going to be chasing his job, his hobbies? Is he going to be chasing Jesus for that one week of the year because the pastor stirred his affections? I don't know. What are we chasing today, dad? I don't know. You're going to frustrate the fool out of your children when you lack clarity and direction for where you're going as a family. But if you want them to obey and honor you, it'll start by getting off the fence and going one single direction, pursuing that. As they observe you washing your wife as with the word, making your wife cleanse, and you know what, they're going to honor you as a dad a lot more because you are making their mom better. They'll be glad to honor you because the woman they care most about in your life is better because she's with you. It gets heavy and costly, and it's good, though. Man, it's good. Huh. Uh, I have enough kids. Those of you who don't know, I got four. That's enough. No, it's, I like every. I love everyone. <laughs> got four. Four kids, two boys, two girls. Um, but I got enough to know this: that each one's different. Those people that have one kid and that kid honors and obeys them, they think they're the best parents on earth. 
It's a lie. Have two. You'll realize you're a failure like me. Okay? Because when you have two, you realize each one's different. And because they're different, they require different nurture and parenting. If I parented all my kids the same, it'd be, a, it'd be awful. Most of the time it is awful, but it'd be even more awful if I parented them all the same. Um, but what is same across the board is we have parents who desire honor from their children. And I give all four of my kids that are all completely different one direction. And because they wake up with clarity and we know what dad cares about, we know what dad's pursuing, they know what honor and obedience looks like. And they're not frustrated. Even though they're all uniquely different, they can all go. They can all go. I got to engage in conversation and in discipline different with each one because what disciplines one would crush another. Right? But when all four wake up in the morning, we know what direction we're going as a family because Dad declared it. They can honor and obey, and we can go together. Right? Doesn't frustrate because I'm on the fence going back and forth. A son's disobedience may stem from frustration as much as rebellion. Okay? A son's disobedience may stem as much from frustration than it does rebellion. If your kid wakes up in the morning frustrated with dad because of the lack of clarity and direction, he's going to rebel. But it may not be because he's a rebellious kid. It may be because you don't give the direction and the clarity. Okay? The instruction of the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And when a father leads from there, kids can find consistency. Raise them up and then raise them up. What's he say? Uh, fathers, don't stir up anger with your children. Bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. That's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's never going to change. It's never going to change. So when you lead from there, your kids can find consistency. Before Shelly and I got married, which is almost 15 years ago now, I'm going to turn, y'all know how old I'm going to turn this year? 40. 40. Anybody else turning 40? Like, Shay, how old are you? 30. Dang, dude, you're young. You want to tell how old you are right now? No, right behind you. I wouldn't ask a female. I'm <laughs> 40. Man. 40. It makes me feel old. Joe, I'm not even going to ask you, dude. Because you look like you're 22. <laughs> Shelly got married almost 15 years ago, and um, her dad sent us to a marriage conference like before we got married. We're sitting in a two-day conference about marriage before we got married. You know what it sounded like? It sounded like Charlie Brown. It was like, womp, 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 womp. And I'm like, am I in the wrong room? All of you not married right now. That may feel like what you're at, right? Womp, womp, am I in the wrong room? Like we just opened up the scriptures and we've heard about wives, husbands, children. I don't really fit any of those right now. Maybe I showed up to the wrong place this morning. No, we got something for you right now. Singles. He didn't write this in here, but if he did, he would say singles. <laughs> husbands, wives, children, singles. Here's what he's going to say. Here's the application for you. 
Same application across the board. Number one, encourage holiness and boldness in those around you without taking the role of a critic. Fulfill this in the people God's put in your life, right here. Same thing that the wife is called to do. If you're not married right now, be that person for those around you. Be their biggest fan, not their biggest critic, and you're going to produce boldness in the lives of those around you. Begin to practice that right now and be the person in your office, the person in your neighborhood, the person in this church that makes others more bold because of your relationship with them. Do not be the critic. Focus on their strengths instead of tearing down their weaknesses. Be the one who builds others up so they can go deep in their journeys. Give people courage. Give people boldness. Number two, which actually I got number three. I skipped number two on my notes here, but that's not visible to you. Number two, go ahead and die to yourself daily in order to help others become clean as you speak and read and pray the Word of God over them. If you're single right now, everybody's going to say, live it up, because when you get married... It's over. Now what I'm going to say, if you're single right now, die to yourself daily so that your ministry in the scriptures might bring holiness in the lives of others. Practice that now. In your office, in your church, in your everything I just said before. Go ahead and fulfill the role of a husband in the lives of others. Die to yourself. Do not take these single years as um, years for you just to be extravagant in whatever you want. Because when you do that, and then if God gives you a family in the future, you're going to wreck it. Right. Go ahead and implement these things today where you die to yourself daily and your ministry of the Word makes others clean. Number three, have spiritual children. If you don't have kids right now, have spiritual children and raise them up from immaturity to maturity in Christ. Go ahead and, and take others who are new, either they don't care about Jesus, they don't, they don't want to care about Jesus, and you share the gospel with them, and they, they begin to have their eyes open, they begin to, to long for these things. Take them from that new phase to a mature phase. Walk with them through the immature years. Walk with them, help, help them grow up just like you do a kid. Right? Invest in others. Have spiritual children right now in your years of singleness. The last one is honor every authority. It says that children are to obey and honor their parents. And, and this is scriptural because Peter talks about it in his letters. Go ahead as a single and honor every authority in your life. Go ahead and practice that. Model that. Whether it's your boss, your mayor, whatever it is, it's over your life. Practice modeling, honoring every authority in your life. Whether they lead with clarity or not. I used to be the world's worst when it came to jobs with bosses that I thought were inadequate because I'm always better from the back seat. Dang, that was my biggest flaw. Still is, it just I sit in the front seat now, so it's not a flaw anymore. But <laughs> that's true, self-employed, and it's just how it rolls. But I didn't do that on purpose, Mark. It's not like I tried to get out from underneath. But I recognized that myself, that when I was, I became the world's worst backseat driver when it came to every job I had. I could figure it out better than my boss. When it came to every church that I served at, I could figure it out better than my pastor. And submitting to authority that didn't have clarity was one of the hardest things in my life to do. But as a single, go ahead and do that. And when you do that, when you do all four of these things, you encourage others, you die to yourself daily, you raise up spiritual children, you submit to authority. When you do that, right now, in your years of singleness, if God gives you a family later, you'll know how to operate in it. But if you use these years of singleness for yourself, 
it can be a train wreck when you get married. Right? By show of hands, how many of you, when you said, I do, how many of you said, I do, before you knew what you were doing? Like I said, I stood at the altar and I said, I do, before I knew what the heck I was doing. It's like you got married and you're like, yeah. <laughs> when I said I do, Shelly and I went and sat in the lobby of the church and I sat down. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like responsible for you now. Like the pastor like said, by the power invested in me through the state of Arkansas and my heart sunk. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just said I do, but I don't. I mean, I want to, but I don't know. <laughs> Singles, if you, if you do these things today, when God gives you a family, you'll already be practicing everything you need to lead a home. You'll already practice everything you need to lead a home. Um, so let me wrap us up with a couple thoughts here real quick. Two changes I want to make to our ministry. Two changes I really want us to make to our ministry. Uh, if you're new to us, uh, we have a thing called DNA Groups. D stands for discover who God is and what he has said. N stands for nurture the truths of the gospel into each other's lives. And A is to apply these truths to everyday life. DNA. We want to discover, nurture, and apply these things. So we have DNA groups. Historically, these have been gender-specific. Men meet together, small groups of men, small groups of women. Um, but one of the changes I want to make is I want us to offer... Uh, in order to help husbands and fathers become influencers in their home, we want to make it more natural and practical for you to be a part of these. Because what we found is our singles can eat up DNA groups because they don't have anything time them down at home. They, but our fathers have really struggled because the demands of home and leaving your wife for two hours could be a part of this. So we want to shift this and begin to offer um, more neutral DNA groups that are open so that you can come with your spouse and you can bring your kids come play in a room and have controlled chaos, right? So that it's more accessible for you to be a part of this so that we can grow up beyond our excuses. We want to help you get off the fence by making it more attainable to you, okay? So that's a strategic move on our behalf. We want to make that change in the very near future. Um, we want to adapt to what we see. Number two is we want to make a disciple makers group. This is a very small group. This is not a group for everybody, but this is a group for people that want to become multipliers. If you want to multiply the faith that God has placed in you in the lives of others, I got a one year investment in your life. It's going to be booty crack of dawn. It's going to involve a whole bunch of reading and a whole bunch of writing and me pushing you in places to do things that you're terrified to do. But at the end of a year, I believe you'll be equipped to multiply into the lives of others. Because we desperately need to have a church full of men who are equipped and engaged in the process of raising others from immaturity to maturity so that that begins to multiply over the years. Okay, That's going to be a very small group, but it's a very strategic group. Those are the two things I want to offer in order to help men get off the fence and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what we're going to do. So I think both of those things, we're probably going to host a dinner 
in the next couple weeks to introduce both of those things and to get them implemented. So keep an eye out for the next couple weeks as we invite you to a dinner for both of those things. Joshua chose not to live life on the fence. He said, I'm not going to do it today. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord right now. He made that declaration. Those who benefited, benefited from his courage were those that lived in his home and God's people in general. Everybody benefited from Joshua getting off the fence and said, this is the decision for me and my home. I want you to do one thing right now as we, as we close. I want you to close with this thought in mind. Look around you and consider. Look around your life and consider who stands to benefit from you. If you, right now, were to get off the fence and say, I'm going to go deep in this journey of faith. I'm going to press on and get off the fence, lay down my excuses, move forward in boldness, and see where this journey goes. Who around you stands to benefit from you and from your life? For Joshua, this is home and God's people as a whole. And our last question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to get out, go deep into your journey, or you're going to sit on the fence. That's the question at hand. Anybody got a thought? We'd like to end our time allowing you to speak freely, reflect, ask questions, make statements. You got a thought, question, comment?